All right, so we are on week number two of starting this new series on counsels and thoughts for the spiritual life of believers. Um, Again, um, a a book written by someone who's not known, Thomas More, um, back in the late 1800s. He served as an elder alongside uh, Charles Spurgeon in the church there in London. So wrote this this book on um, it's very puritanical in its uh, presentation and, and, and leanings uh, but again just like its title is these are um, brief uh, thoughts sometimes a little bit longer than other different chapters but it's on the whole purpose is to edify us in our walk as believers in Christ and so that's that's the aim of what's the author had when he wrote this book. So that's what we're walking through now in our Sunday school. Um, This morning, by God's grace, we're going to be covering um, chapters two and three of part one. Uh, So this is the name of the chapter. Like I said, it was kind of puritanical in its its leanings, therefore a long name for uh, uh, the title of a chapter, To the Believer. Concerning legal and filial reconciliation to God and concerning the forgiveness of sins. Again, the aim is how we are encouraged in our walk, in our walk as we've been raised to newness of life through the scripture. Well, on page, very beginning of this particular chapter on page seven, um, The author writes, as a believer, you are not only a saved sinner, but a reconciled child of God. And it is your privilege to walk daily in the consciousness and enjoyment of that relationship. Now, what believer does not desire to have that very thing every day in his or her walk? This this enjoyment of that relationship that we have as a reconciled child to God. Now, there could be some here this morning, you know, amongst us, that are struggling to realize and acknowledge the benefits in their adoption and having God as their father. That is not an uncommon thing at all. In fact, you know, I would suppose that every believer struggles at this at t- some time or another. Just to understand the power in acknowledging what it means to be reconciled as a child of God. Well, this enjoyment, uh, the author argues, uh, requires a clear conscience that our reconciliation to the one true, almighty, most holy God has been completely made and finished by God himself. And this has been made effective through the death death of Christ. It's made effective through the death of Christ. So one thing that we cannot do in our walk, and really we must not do, is to think that our reconciliation to God's justice depends anything upon, even to the least degree, on the strength or the quality of our faith. Not anything that it is that we can do. Because if we think that we have 
in some way contributed to our reconciliation, then we're really never going to know our uh, peaceful comfort that we should have in this truth. We're not going to enjoy that peace that should come along with this acknowledgement. Why? Because we know ourselves. We know ourselves, you know, in the night watch, on our beds, when you're tossing and turning because your mind won't turn off. We know that we miss the mark. That even when grace is active in whatever it is that we are doing, as Christians, uh, as that grace is assisting us, even in our best actions and our, our best thoughts, in our faith itself, we are made so imperfect by that corruption that remains because of the fall from our first parents, from our own actual sins. We, we realize that we fall short of this mark we we know this to be true our en- enjoyment of a reconciled relationship to god it, it's not again on what we can accomplish it's what has been steadfastly applied to us Th- those merits of christ that have been applied to us that's where we that's where we need to start Always, at the cross, what Christ accomplished in his death. Now, you know, any doubt that we have regarding the completeness of our reconciliation to the just and holy God, whose law, again, we know that we we have transgressed, that we've broken, any doubt that we have because of this, will in some way cast doubt upon what we understand in the completeness of our reconciliation to God as our Father. So if we have doubts about our reconciliation to the just and holy God, we're going to struggle in having that peace that we should have being reconciled to God as our Father. There's a distinction here. Now, Rhetorically, I have a question here, you know. Reconciliation to the just and holy God and reconciliation to God our Father. Do you think that there's a distinction there? That there's a distinction between how our reconciliation, how it should be viewed or even could be viewed. One, again, to the God who is holy and just and to God as our Father. Well, the author believes there is a distinction to, to notice and to see here. And I believe he's right. Um, there's a distinction here, but it, it's not necessarily essential to our theology of salvation, but is very much a theological concept we need to understand and embrace. Um, very helpful in reminding ourselves of what a glorious reconciliation is that we have that Christ has accomplished. Again, our reconciliation to God. Um, that reconciliation that we have to God um, is in regards to our position as a sinner 
when it comes to God who is holy and just. It's, it's in regard with our position as a, a sinner saved by grace. But our reconciliation to God as our Heavenly Father has to do with our position as a child. Reconciliation to God must be about, it must be about addressing his demanding justice. He is a just God. His justice had to be satisfied. And whether that justice is met by um, the conviction of the sinner or it's met by the substituted atonement of Christ, you know, realized in our life by faith, that justice of God must be met. But your reconciliation to God is our as your Father in heaven. Uh, that's different. It, it's different. And it's the result of his gracious, spirit-wrought operations in your heart. Those, those true filial affections. Now that word was in the title, filial. What does that mean? Well, it's just relating to between God as our Father and we're his sons and daughters. That family affection, those family ties. The, when we refer to our reconciliation to God as our Father, that's what we're talking about here, those family ties. Uh, the author, he, he, says, he writes in his book, he says, as God, as God, his justice must be satisfied. As a father, his love must be satisfied. Now, amen to that. You know, Christ's death, it satisfied justice. And the gift of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy through regeneration, it awakens the newly born of God to what? To see our awful need for Christ. And it's to there that we flee for rescue, for salvation. Now we look to God as um, not as just God as judge, but as a God of grace and mercy. Without any fear of wrath or judgment to come. And so for the believer, Jesus has become now his surety and God his Father. So this is a reality that will never be altered once that reconciliation has been made. Never been altered. It's a debt that will never resurface. It's fully paid and it's in the tight grip of a father who is also Lord God Almighty. So what truly, what more assurance of a thoroughly complete reconciliation could a person ever dream of and think of? Our reconciliation to God has been met on both demands of justice and we are reconciled to him as children in that adoption. It is this filial, this family tie type of reconciliation that we are to be enjoying. And if we struggle, the point he's making here in this chapter is if, we, if we're struggling so much on not having met what has already been met in the reconciliation to God through his justice 
being met and satisfied, then we're going to struggle with resting and having that peace with him as our father. We're going to doubt things about God because of that, that relationship we have. Now, I, I don't want to confuse anyone here in terms of understanding what it, being reconciled to God is. Um, just really to deepen our thankfulness for it. There is that distinction here. But I don't want to confuse anyone. There is no antagonism between God is God and God is Father. Not, not at all. No antagonism at all. Because from time eternal, before the foundations of the world were even laid, it is his love as Father that has moved him to make every arrangement for the satisfaction of his judgment. Of his justice. On the behalf of those whom he has chosen to love. Making every single arrangement for our eternal well-being. Now that's a peace that we need to be walking in daily and enjoying. He talks about in the same chapter about um, forgiveness of sins. And it's very closely related to our position before God as a child. Um, this, you know, the, the forgiveness that he promises, that he offers and grants when we offer up a sincere confession. Now, um, I'm going to take a moment here, and what we're going to compare here is um, law and grace from this view of God as God and God as Father. Um, I know this is a busy slide here, but I thought it'd be helpful. Uh, law and justice. You know, neither of those two things, neither of those two things make provision for reconciliation or forgiveness. Not in, in, not in themselves. More, he writes, all that law and justice require all that law and just requires is full satisfaction. Either perfect obedience or satisfaction and payment of a suitable penalty for disobedience. Either way, the holy law of God is satisfied. And ultimately, resulting in covenantal blessings. Blessings secured by covenant that are bestowed upon us or it's realized in the threats of that covenant being realized. Again, what are those threats? Eternity. Suffering the wrath of God for not being able to uphold God's law perfectly, which none of us can do. None of us can do. but realized through the obedience of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ. So there is reward for obedience, and there's forgiveness for disobedience as well for us Christians. Uh, it pertains to the dominion of grace and mercy, which is distinct from law and justice. But it's important here, important to note, that such received grace and mercy, it's subordinate to a satisfied law. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say subordinate, I mean 
um, in order. It comes, it's not before the need for justice to be satisfied is subordinate to it. Um, Grace and mercy cannot have their full outflow until first having found a way to satisfy law and justice. Moore writes, if grace and mercy reigned supreme over law, it would show that the arm of the law and justice was too weak to assert its right. For the strength of the law consists in its power to obtain satisfaction if it is broken. And indeed it did obtain satisfaction in Christ for us who believed upon him. So if I was to try to put a face to personify grace and mercy... Uh, then I should show how they have a a love. Grace and mercy have a love for the law and justice of God by not attempting to show the favor of God on persons that are still in a prison, bound by sin, the chains of sin, because the work of Christ hasn't been yet made effectual for them. Now, first, justice must be satisfied. Then the way is open for grace and mercy to work out their fullest desires in our life. And so goes the forgiveness of sins. You know, Scripture displays two types of forgiveness that we receive as saints. First, there is the forgiveness received as divine justice being satisfied. All right? We are saved. Saved at that moment and continue to be saved until we are saved in the end when Christ gets us or we go to be with him through death. So there's that forgiveness that we realize as divine justice is satisfied. In Acts 13, verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's what is being proclaimed there. That justice has been satisfied. So we've been forgiven and we realize that. But then there's forgiveness as an act of mercy, an act of grace from God. Not only is justice being satisfied and how it embraces the whole of our sins, but one that we receive as a child of God, that is, we seek and receive from God our Father in relation to the commands that we disobey, right? We still need to seek forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there are those two dis- distinctions, you could say, in forgiveness. Um, the one that we receive when we come faith is justice satisfied in the forgiveness that we need to be seeking daily as we confess our sins our known sins to God so God as judge he acquits the whole of life's transgressions even before many of those have even committed been committed and that's accomplished on the cross for all that Christ died for But the Father only grants his fatherly forgiveness after his child has actually sinned. 
you know, that, that sin that is actualized, that actual sin. Now, only then does the child consciously then need forgiveness. And the father is ready to grant it once a sincere confession is made. There were many in um, the early church and continue even this today in different ways that deny the fact that as believers we, can, we still sin. You know, John had a point to make in his letter um, that if we deny the fact that we sin, then we make God to be a liar. So we need to be seeking forgiveness, of course. We know this. We know this. It's part of our, our, our need as, as we walk with him. But it's also something to be celebrated in our walk with the Lord and to be thankful for. That he grants that forgiveness and that we shouldn't be carrying around that guilt at all. No sin is seen by God as judge on sinners who have trusted in Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, right? He forgets it. Um, Jesus' death on the cross, um, it has legally and judiciously swept away our sin as they were laid upon him. Our sin can't be counted to both us sinners and to Christ, our surety, at the same time. That would be unjust. So Jesus' death, willingly that he suffered for our sins, it, it, it set both us and Jesus, who is our surety, free. Because when we died in him and been set free from these things. Second Timothy Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we also live with him. When Christ died on our behalf, we died in him. And that penalty applies to us, or that justice that's been satisfied applies to us. That's an amazing thing to be pondering in our walk. It's an encouragement that we need to remind ourselves of. You know, God as judge, he recognizes no sins on those who trust in Christ. However, God as father does recognize the sins of his children when we disobey his commands. You know, what happens? We receive loving chastisement. As, unless we confess our sins and seek his forgiveness. You know, such unconfessed sin, that's often that's that disconnect from God that we can feel sometimes in our spiritual pilgrimage. When there is sin that we're holding on to, you know, we're not confessing. We're not really sincerely trying to repent from it. We're not looking, God's not expecting perfection again. He knows we're not perfect. But when we're not even struggling, truly trying to reach out, power that we have that's that disconnect we often feel and we need that forgiveness from god our father we need to sincerely confess our sins you know it's the ache in the bones that king david talks about in psalm 38 when we hold back our sincere confession david wrote there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation 
That's the indignation as a father. There's no soundness, soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. As a child of God, going to our loving Heavenly Father, we must not ask forgiveness as if we were a sinner in danger of eternal condemnation. That's not our position before God anymore. You know, that condemnation exists no more. But we must ask, as a sorrowful child who is grieved for having displeased a loving and gracious father, as he writes in his book, he said, that forgiveness sought in the Lord's Prayer, that we see and read in the Lord's Prayer, that is a father's forgiveness that we are to seek. That's a father's forgiveness that we're being taught in that prayer. All right, so there's the distinctions that we can be thoughtful of in our walk. The distinctions that we have in our reconciliation to God. One that's been served from a perspective of justice. And one that we have to God as our Father. And that's something we need to be celebrating in our walk. Um, Next thing I want to talk about here is concerning the distinctive character of faith of the elect of God. There's distinction there as as well in terms of faith. So in our confession, in our confession, chapter 14, verse 3, it speaks of a faith which is the faith of the unregenerate. It's called the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Has anyone ever wondered what that means in our confession? Um, term temporary believers. I, I know sitting through leading that class at times, coming upon this chapter, it has confused some folks sometimes. What does that mean, temporary believers? It's those, I think, really well symbolized by the seed in the parable of the sower. Um, That's a good way to think about it, I think, to explain this. In particular, that seed that's sown on rocky ground uh, or the seed that is sown among the thorns. There is some initial enjoyment of some sort, but it's a faith that cannot stand God's testing. And its owner does not enjoy Christ as his surety. Now, these persons are, are still dead in their sins, these temporary believers. Um, then there is the faith of the true believer. Right? So there's the faith of the unregenerate. And there's the faith of the true believer, a gift from God, and it's enjoyed by those who have um, been quickened by the Holy Spirit, been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the faith of God's elect. Um, So the character of the faith of the unregenerate, this temporary believer, that faith may influence the man to come before God, but he's going to come before God in the abundance of his own religious and moral acts. Okay? On the other hand, there's the character of the faith of the true believer. And that will influence its owner to come before God 
in the living consciousness of his spiritual life. Really what that means is just the consciousness that cannot be satisfied with his or her own religious works, his own acts, but aware of the pressing need for continued grace and mercy. That's the, the faith of the saint. Um, more, he writes, the one brings his religion before God and hopes for God's favor because of it. That's the faith of the unregenerate. The other brings before God his emptiness, his sinfulness, and, and need, and casts himself upon God's mercy as revealed in Christ. One of the greatest needs that mankind has is to understand their need for Christ. And that will be seen in the faith of the true believer. Even though, you know, again, those terms of justice have been satisfied. The faith of the unregenerate man remains unreconciled to God. um, So that even on his best day, his most religious day, if you were to call it that, there is no real communion with God because there's no reconciliation. But that's not the case with us as believers. Uh, It doesn't really take much. It doesn't take much. Uh, It certainly doesn't require our most religious day as a believer to have our thoughts and affections turned toward our Lord. Um, Sometimes it's just the hearing of a divine truth that turns our affections toward him. You know, hearing something said, reminding, being reminded of a sweet truth, it doesn't take our best religious day to turn our, our, our affections heavenward. And that we can even have those true affections in the midst of circumstances that would expose the false faith of the unregenerate. Even in those difficult times that we have, in those trials and testing. You know, the faith of God's elect, what it zeroes in, what it focuses on is the cross of Christ. Because uh, it's there. It's there that we behold the death of Christ for sinners. And the way that has been made complete for salvation. The unregenerate man, his faith... Um, it may cause him to do very much good in the world. Don't deny that. That they are doing things out there that um, what we would call, that's a good thing. We don't deny that. And his, his faith may be influencing him to do that. But it's never for the right reasons. Now, do you remember those of you who got to come to the conference a couple weeks ago, how Vody described the these three hurdles, I guess you could call it, regarding what constitutes a truly good work. Remember what those were? The first was um, that a good work must be the right thing. It must be the right thing. Second, it must be done in the right way. And third, it must be done for the right reason. And it's this third part of description of a good work, of a truly good work that is impossible for the unbeliever to do. His 
personal convictions and disciplines may cause him to do very much good in the world. But it is still sin because it is not done in faith. And it's not being done for the reason of glorifying God. Romans 14, verse 23, the second half of this verse really makes it clear. For whatever someone does, what anyone does, if it doesn't proceed from faith, it is sin. So even an unbeliever may save a family from burning building. The act is good and it's the right thing to do. They still should be doing these things. They still should be doing these things. But it's still imperfect because of the corruption that remains. And it's still a sin. It's not done in faith. So I got a question. You know, this assertion that's being made here about the unregenerate man not being able to truly do something that is a true good work. Does, does anyone struggle with that? With making sense of that assertion? That there is no good work that is so good that an unregenerate man can do that is not still sinful? I know it trips up a lot of people. Yeah, Judith. same thought comes to my mind as well how even our best act is still tainted well in essence this this unregenerate person who would go to God with his good works at least partly what he's telling God is see what I have to hand over to you to satisfy your holy standards and that's impossible. Again, our holy standards were only met. Not our holy standards. God's holy standards were only met through what Christ's and his merits were able to accomplish on our behalf. And so the, the unregenerate man that who does the, you know, again, runs into a burning building. He may even die in that effort. But it is still the effort of a man born in sin. So, I appreciate that comment, Judith. And, you know, if we want to continue making progress in our spiritual life, which is, again, you know, the reason why we're going through this book here, the way it zeroes in on these, these little epithets of thoughts that he has, um, if we want to continue to making progress in our spiritual life, that you know, growing in godliness, 
then the faith of God's elect must be focused on two things. Two things he points out. First, the cross of Christ, and secondly, Christ himself. Okay? Now, regarding the cross of Christ, it, it, is, it is there where we are reminded of that atonement that's been made effectual for us. You know, our sin paid and covered, our inherited sin, and our actual sin, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, all covered, paid for. And there's nothing that can annul our reconciled status to God. Nothing. Romans eight thirty nine, Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have no cause for doubting the surety of our salvation. This is the encouragement we need when we begin to doubt. And we begin to doubt and we let these, this doubt come in and, and cloud us. And we're not able to climb out of uh, our sadness for a long, long time. I've been dealing with these, a sadness, whatever that may be. What we need what we need. We don't need to be chastening ourselves, punishing ourselves because we don't feel like we're effectual for the kingdom of God. But what we need is to be running to the grace and mercy that's already there and provided for us. We need to be washing ourselves in the word and remembering those promises. There's nothing that can separate us. And for the power also to resist sin and the devil, the world and its allurements, that strength and faith that we need. We need to be focusing on Christ himself. So we need to be focusing on the cross of Christ and Christ himself, who is the author and finisher of our faith. You know, the power of death, you know, Satan's very best thrown at Christ. Was not, he was not able to, to conquer him. Now he is risen. He's at the right hand of God the Father. The very fullness of God in Christ is working to supply our every need for our daily walk. So, so brother and sister, it is very good to do all that we can to strengthen our faith. Growing in knowledge, you know, prayer to believe the promises of God, you know, courage to obey and live them out. But as Christians, we must rest under the fact that it is always the object of our faith that saves and rescues and encourages us, not faith itself. So quit chastening yourself. Quit punishing yourself because you display a weak faith. You don't need more of the law. You need grace.